Although we grieve in the face of this world's burdens, we are comforted by being united with all God's people in the sacrament of the altar. Christ is binding us together into one communion. He is making our hearts merry and glad, and he is giving us a longing for the beauty of heaven itself. Welcome to the Sand Hills Lutheran Ministry Podcast. I am Pastor John Edding. The title of this sermon on All Saints Sunday is Knit into One Communion. This is a sermon on Revelation 7, verses 2 through 17. Thanks be to God. Let's get to the sermon. Praise be unto you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. It is easy for the Christian to feel isolated. Survivors of persecution have said that the final goal of the evil one is to cause you to lose hope. The devil wants nothing more than to cause Christians to to lose hope and to believe that God has forgotten about you, that you are alone, that you're the last one, a dying minority, insignificant and inconsequential. And I do not think that that is true only in places and times of persecution. The devil works that same despair in many ways. Uh, Maybe you are aware that the pews of many Christian churches are mostly empty. Some are full, and praise God. For the most part, uh, Sharon and I have shared ministry together in parts of the world where Christians are the minority. Like living in a country in Western Africa where Christians number less than 1% in most of the major people groups. Or even most recently in the United States in Reno, living in Reno, Nevada in that area. A couple years ago, Reno was scored as the second most unchurched city in North America, following only uh, San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose. They grouped those three together in one large city uh, in California. So while living in, in Reno, Nevada, in a very unchurched area, we thought it was important you know, for our youth group to experience... Um, Gatherings, youth gatherings, to give them a little bigger picture about the Christian church. So our little parish outside of Reno raised the funds and sent a little group to the LCMS National Youth Gathering in San Antonio, held a a number of years ago. And it was one of the best things we ever did for them. The programming was great. Uh, The the week spent in service and worship and, and play was excellent. But what truly made the difference was the first night and just walking into the stadium filled with nearly 30,000 young Lutherans. So in confirmation class, you know, we would talk about how the, the Holy Christian Church was far larger than what we see with our eyes. But that's hard to internalize. So... 
Just imagine the difference it made to a high school age youth standing in the entrance of a large stadium, most likely standing in awe. And as one pastor wrote, that one of his youth group members who went to the same gathering looked at him and said, who are all these people? And his pastor told him they were all Lutherans, like him. And so he spent the next five days getting his head around that. He had no idea that there were so many Lutheran young people. And, and I think, the pastor wrote, he went back to school that fall feeling differently. He got a bigger picture. Now the prayer of the day also captures for us this truth as well. You and I are knit together into one holy communion. We pray not only to see the eyes of faith a bigger picture, but a, the big picture of God's people. Almighty and everlasting God, you knit together your faithful people of all times and places into one holy communion, the mystical body of your son, Jesus Christ. We are knit into one holy communion. That is the big picture that we're thinking about today on All Saints Day. So if you will turn to page 1031 of your pew Bible, or unless you're already there, let's take a look at the two sections or this, this, this text for this morning. Let's start by looking at verse 9, though. And then we'll backtrack a little bit. Because this verse 9 is the big picture verse in this section of Revelation. Again, page 1031 of the Pew Bible. So verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Their, their author... John was exiled to Patmos, an island, and he lived in a cave all alone. And it must have been glorious for him to see that vision of a mighty, innumerable host. And this is the reason that God is sharing it with you. You need to see it too. I need to see it also. This is the reason that God is sharing it with you. And you need that experience of those uh, standing in the arena in San Antonio uh, many years ago. You are a part of a great and mighty host. You are gathered around the throne and the Lamb every Sunday. <coughs> now it's critical to remember that the goal of the author, again, John, is not to make people afraid. Quite the contrary. Uh, the goal of Revelation is to calm people's fears. Now, it does depict some, using some crazy picture language, it depicts the, the monstrous enemies of the people of God as terrible beasts because they are already afraid of them. It's like it's a little like the political cartoonists during, of the day, the Cold War days. Some of you remember 
where Russia is depicted as a fierce bear, right? (laughs) And as the tensions rise, the, the cartoonist will depict his fangs and claws to be longer and larger. So John's people are enduring a terrible persecution. So he depicts their persecutors as fearsome because they are afraid of them. And then as the story unfolds, the fearsome enemies are overcome. God wins. God intervenes. The people are saved. Revelation is not a horror story, but an anti-horror story. Unfortunately, we've forgotten how to read it. (laughs) So John sees the people of God twice in this section of Revelation, and our text invites us to consider the world as God sees it and to take note of important truths. So in this case, we have a definition of the people of God as God sees them. First, we have the people described as Israel enumerated, numbered. Now it seems tedious and the names can really trip up the inexperienced. Now each tribe has 12,000 and when taken in in aggregate, in whole, that comes to 144,000. So now we, we need to talk a little bit more about numbers in John. The numbers in John seem to be intended as symbolic numbers. Ten seems to be a number of completeness. A complete complement of fingers is ten. The number twelve seems to be a number which stands for the people of God. Now, the ancient people were pretty good at what we call basic math. Subtraction, addition, multiplication, etc. And multiplying a number like this would intensify it. Let me tell you, uh, explain what what I mean by that. Thus, 10 is all of something. But 100, 10 times 10, is even more intensely, is is really all of something. And 1,000, 10 times 10 times 10, is even more intensely all. 12, you remember again, are the people of God, and 12 times 12, or 144, is really, truly the people of God. You see what I mean by the intensifying sense? You can see where this is going. The number 144,000 is not a literal number of people, but perhaps could be rendered as 10 times 10 times 10 times 12 times 12. Or in descriptive terms, we could say all, really all, absolutely all, the really, truly people of God. And now the numbering of the people in the first part of the text also serves another function, it seems. You know, in the Old Testament, this sort of numbering occurs several times, and it always had a military function. Even Jesus. Uh, So, okay, an example would be the census that Moses took to get people arranged for battle. Even Jesus, at the feeding of the multitudes in Mark, tells them to be seated in groups of 50 and hundreds, which was the military formation of ancient Israel. 
So John's depiction of the people in verses 2 through 8 seems to be a picture of the church militant. Or you could also say uh, church engaged with the world. With Engaged with what? With real weapons? No. With the beautiful tools of love that God has given to us to wield and to use in the world. Now that is contrasted with the next picture, where the people are not numbered, but they're simply called innumerable. Right after the 144,000, John says that the people are innumerable. And this is not the picture of the church militant, but the church at rest. The church in heaven. The people have palm fronds, not swords. They are gathered around the throne of God in a scene which is, will be used again in, um, in Revelation, reminds us of the scene in Revelation 4 and 5, and it will be used again in Revelation chapter 14. So read very carefully how they are described. They have no worry or problem. They do not hunger or thirst. God takes perfect care of them and has wiped away every tear. And they are now part of that great heavenly multitude who sing in praise of the Father and and the Son on the throne in the presence and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And of special importance is the question that the angel, which the angel answers. Question of the angel in which the angel answers for John. Let's take a look at that. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Their wedding garment, to pull from the parable, is theirs by virtue of his death. They have come out of the great tribulation of this life, where they have wept many tears, endured hardships of every kind, and in this latter time which John sees, they are at perfect peace, and rest. And for a persecuted people, this one simply says, there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is light at the end of the tunnel. This persecution will end either in your death or some other way, but for you it will end, and you will enjoy perfect rest. But for the persecuted and the Christian of every time, it also says that those who have died, whose bodies we have laid to rest in the grave, they're not lost, nor are they forgotten by God. He wipes away their tears and our tears. The psalmist writes in Psalm 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. They are precious to him, joining those heavenly ranks of angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. So to summarize our text, we are still part of the church militant, not yet, or the church engaged, not yet the church at rest. But we are also in faith at one with the church at rest. We are knit together into one holy communion. Big picture. 
And this truth matters. In a few weeks, in various corners of the country, uh, you know, undoubtedly, families will gather together for, to celebrate Thanksgiving, but many families will feel acutely the, the, the absence of a father, a spouse, or a toddler who died. The empty chair of those folks would have occupied, which those folks would have occupied would be a marker of enormous absence. Christians grieve and mourn, maybe perhaps not like others who do so without hope, but the death of a cherished loved one is still a matter of great pain to us and for us. None of us is immune from the sting of death. Jesus has overcome it, but we await, we wait for the promised resurrection of which his own resurrection was but a first fruit. This Thanksgiving day, we will gather with our families, eat a feast together, but in almost every home, there will be an empty chair. A grandfather, a husband, a wife, a child who is not there, who cannot be there. They are dead, and we feel their absence. Jesus is aware of your tears. He knows that you grieve your loved ones. Your loved ones are not as distant as you might think. He who has crossed over that great chasm of life to death and back again bridges it right here for us. And just as we celebrate Thanksgiving Day with a feast with our loved ones, today and every day we stand at the chancel before the altar with our hand extended And he bids us dine with the company of heaven, including the loved ones you have buried and who await the resurrection in his hands. I cannot explain it, but I can believe it. When I eat this bread and drink this wine, I am with him and with them. It is not the last day, nor the fullness of the resurrection, but it is a comfort right now. I feast with angels, archangels, and with all the company of heaven. I'm going to bring up an image and have you take a look at the image on your bulletin insert. Here we go. I have, we have an image up here in full technicolor. If you've been to Wittenberg uh, in Germany and you've toured through St. Mary's Church, you've probably seen the picture of, uh, in, that's in the bulletin and projected on the screen. It was executed by the first, or well, famous artist of the Reformation, Lucas Cranach. It is in the center, and then the, it is the largest element of a series of paintings above the altar. You really cannot miss it. So let's take a look at it. The painting is, of course, a depiction of the Last Supper. But there is much going on here that is worth noting. So we see Jesus on the left, and then who's reclining on his chest? That's John who is described in the gospel as the one who reclines on his chest, and he's also the author of Revelation. 
Then Peter sits next to him, and as you go around the table, take a look at the clothing. The clothing becomes more and more contemporary to the 16th century. And on the far side of Jesus sits a man who is turned in order to have his chalice filled. There's some dispute here about who this character is. Now, I've heard that it is, some say it is Luther in the guise of Knight George, the persona he assumed in the Wartburg in the castle when he was in hiding. Others think it is the artist himself, Lucas Cranach. What is not in dispute in the interpretations of the paintings is that the man pouring the wine into his chalice is Cranach's son. But at the time of the painting, Karnak's son had been dead for two years. Karnak painted this painting to show to the, to show the world what was happening in this church, the very church where Luther preached most of his sermons. The feast was uniting people of every time and place, knitting them together into one communion. Peter and John ate this meal. Luther ate this meal and drank this drink. Karnak's dead son was there, and so too are all Christians of every time and place joined into one great host, which John says, you cannot really count. So listen to John. Describe us in the Revelation text the holy ones of God, whom he shepherds and loves and whose tears he carefully drives. Listen to Jesus himself describe us in our all too human conditions today. We are all blessed. The peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.